4, 3, 2, 1, top Allumage P80 et décollage VV12 Aeolus. To mark the end of the European Space Agency's Aeolus Wind Measuring Satellite Mission. And we'll have an explanation later in the show. Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this week's The Space Show, Euclid opens its eyes on the universe. The wind-measuring satellite Aeolus is no more. Russia puts on a sky show. Yes, a sky show for Adelaide, Melbourne and Tasmania. And we have claims about unidentified anomalous phenomena made in the United States Congress, no less. And first up, we'll have Spatial News. India's Chandrayaan-3 entered lunar orbit on August the 5th. The following day, its orbit was adjusted to a perilune, or low point, of 170 kilometres, and an apolune, or high point, of 4,313 kilometres. The craft was launched on July 14 from Sri Harikota. The mission consists of an orbiter, lander and rover. The landing is expected in the lunar south polar region on August the 23rd. Planned landing site is latitude 69.3 degrees south and longitude 32.3 degrees east. Now the orbiter has already radioed back to Earth images of the moon and you can see those on the ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization's website. Meanwhile, Russia plans to launch its Lunar 25 at 9.10am on Friday, Australian Eastern Standard Time, from the Siberian launch site Vostoshny. It is expected to land on the moon at 69.5 degrees south latitude and 43.5 degrees east longitude. 
According to the Xinhua News Agency, Chinese space scientists have revealed how the Chang'e 7 lunar probe, supported by a hopping detector, may go about investigating the water ice in the shadow pit near the south pole of the moon. The launch of this craft would be in 2026. The scientists indicated that a water molecular analyzer will be installed on a mini flying probe to obtain water molecules in the frost layer of the moon's surface. According to their plan, the mini flying probe will take off in the sunlit area and fly into the permanently shadowed bottom of an impact crater. The drilling tool on the probe will then sample lunar soil, uh, water ice, before a mechanical arm will move it into a heating furnace for spectral analysis. This analysis would be able to detect water, ammonia and other volatile matter. Now, the European Space Agency's Euclid astronomical satellite has arrived into a halo orbit around the second Lagrange point, which is one and a half million kilometres away from Earth in the anti-sun direction. Already, it has sent back its first test images. Now, this feature from the European Space Agency gives an overview of the Euclid mission. The universe is not what it appears to be. Visible stars and galaxies make up less than 5% of its total matter and energy. The rest consists of mysterious invisible substances called dark matter and dark energy. ESA's Euclid Space Telescope is a mission to investigate this dark side of the universe. A display of innovative engineering, the 4.7 metres tall spacecraft carries two instruments that will examine visible and infrared light from distant galaxies. It's taken more than 3,500 people in 21 countries, working in more than 300 institutions and 80 companies to make Euclid a reality. This extraordinary telescope will observe around 6 billion galaxies, creating a 3D map of the universe, spanning the last 10 billion years of cosmic history. The shapes of the galaxies and their distribution across the universe provide vital clues about the nature and behaviour of the dark matter and dark energy. Analysing Euclid's data will allow us to see the universe not like it appears, but more like it really is. The European Space Agency's Aeolus satellite re-entered the Earth's atmosphere over Antarctica on Saturday, July the 29th. This feature from the European Space Agency describes the satellite and its mission. My name is Tommaso Parinello. I am Italian and I've been working for the European Space Agency for more than 20 years. I am responsible for two scientific missions called Cryosat, launched in 2010, and ALOS, launched in 2018. Well, Aeolus mission, the name says it, Aeolus was the god of wind, so uh, Aeolus measures wind 
vertical profiles of winds from 0 to 30 kilometers altitude in the atmosphere. His main objective was actually is to improve weather forecast and to improve our understanding about uh, atmospheric dy dynamic processes and how they also impact on climate. Because when wind is an important uh, parameter together with humidity and temperature and is, is the mean um, of exchanging, the, for example, heat and, uh, and energy around the world, as the currents are in the oceans. So it also has here, like for Chrysler, a climate component. Well, it definitely has been a technological success. I mean, Eidos was designed to be the pathfinder of the future Doppler wind LiDAR missions. And the expectation on this measure, on this mission, I would say also the pressure on this mission has been enormous. The mission was designed only to last three and a half years, but we have been able to reach almost five years in space, delivering uh, important data to the scientific community and especially to the weather forecast community. And we have proved that um, this technology can be used also from, for operational use so that we will have a follow-on laser uh, ALOS 2 which will be launched in the, at the beginning of the next day. ALOS has been designed to, uh, to improve weather forecasts. So the main uses are the numerical weather forecast sensors in the world and we are proud to say that this data is now being used by them operationally. But in the last four years we have proven that the data can be used also for different signs um, which includes also aerosol which also includes uh, gravity waves. Around June this year we will declare the end of uh, normal mission operations and we will start what we call the ALOS Beyond phase. This phase will last four to six weeks and we will do some very interesting, important end-of-life tests, important for the scientific community, but also in preparation of ALOS 2. After this phase, we will prepare the satellite to re-enter, and this will happen probably in September or October, but that is another story. In its final days, Romina Percy described how ALOS would be given an assisted re-entry. ESA's pioneering wind mission, Aeolus, is coming home. Currently falling at one kilometer a day, its descent is accelerating. Soon, ESA spacecraft operators will attempt to guide Aeolus's descent home in a first-of-its-kind assisted re-entry. But first, let's take a step back. Aeolus launched into orbit in August 2018 from Europe's spaceport in French Guiana and became the first satellite to measure global winds from space using a laser. Named after Aeolus, the keeper of the winds in Greek mythology, the satellite carries one of the most sophisticated instruments ever to be put into orbit. The Aladdin instrument beamed down 7 billion pulses of UV light to profile Earth's wind. Although designed as a three-year mission, Aeolus has exceeded not only its predicted lifetime, but also all expectations. Over the past five years, its data has been used in major weather forecasting services worldwide. It has tracked the Hunga Tonga volcanic plume, improved the forecasting of hurricanes, followed the huge Saharan dust plume, shed a light on Earth's polar vortex, and filled the gap in weather forecasts when airplanes were grounded during COVID lockdowns. Altogether, it has brought 3.5 billion euros worth of economic benefits over its lifetime. 
and is hailed as one of the most successful missions ever built and flown by ESA. But now it's time for Aeolus to come home. Gravity and the grasping wisps of Earth's atmosphere, sped up by solar activity, are dragging Aeolus down from its altitude of 320 kilometers. Aeolus was never designed for a controlled re-entry, so the satellite would naturally fall back to Earth. But ESA is going above and beyond by attempting an assisted re-entry, the first of its kind. At ESA's Mission Control Center in Germany, teams have saved enough fuel to steer Aeolus during its return to Earth. Predictions on when it will re-enter become more accurate with each passing day a lot of which depends on solar activity. Solar flares and coronal mass ejections are speeding things up. Charged particles in space weather heat up Earth's atmosphere, causing denser air below to rise, increasing the drag of the atmosphere on Aeolus. While solar activity is hard to predict, ESA is targeting the re-entry for end of July or early August if all maneuvers are successful. Most of the satellite will burn up when it reaches an altitude of around 80 kilometers. However, several pieces of debris may reach Earth's surface. Many months of expertise have gone into planning the optimal location for re-entry, which minimizes the extremely remote possibility that falling debris poses a risk to life. Flight Control Team is aiming at a stretch of ocean beneath the satellite's track a long stretch of open water as far away from land as possible. Once Aeolus reaches an altitude of 280 kilometers, an initial maneuver will begin to guide the spacecraft towards the optimal position for re-entry. Four maneuvers will then usher it down further before hours of critical final checks. Then, a final maneuver will direct Aeolus's journey home. The satellite will return in a matter of hours, the vast majority of it burning up in Earth's atmosphere. Today, satellite missions are designed according to regulations that require them to either burn up entirely or undergo a controlled re-entry at the end of their lives in orbit. This first attempt at an assisted re-entry sets a new precedent for re-entering active satellites that didn't fall under these regulations when designed. With Aeolus, ESA is paving the way for safe re-entries and responsible space. Given the rapidly increasing amount of space traffic, Protecting our precious but ever-crowded orbits has never been more important. Aeolus was in a polar orbit, that is, one that took it close to the north and south poles. The final orbit took the satellite southward across the Pacific Ocean, over the Tasman Sea, between Australia and New Zealand, and finally descending over the Southern Ocean. As it crossed the Antarctic coast, directly south of Tasmania, it began to enter the atmosphere and break up. This was on Saturday, July the 29th at 2.40am Australian Eastern Standard Time. Six minutes later, it was all over, with any potential debris falling near the coast of Antarctica, south of South Africa. It is interesting to note that had Aeolus not re-entered on that orbit, the next would have taken it over Queensland, New South Wales and directly over the city of Melbourne. 
Now, to mark the end of the Aeolus mission, the European Space Agency worked with composer Jamie Pereira to create a 28-minute woodwind piece from data that spans the lifetime of the satellite's life in orbit around the Earth. In the resulting orchestral piece, every second is a day in the life of Aeolus, with data represented by the following instruments. The piccolo, the Rayleigh top altitude, that is the tops of the clouds. The flute, the Rayleigh observation type, that is the density of clouds. The oboe was the Rayleigh reference temperature, that is the wind temperature. The clarinet number one was the Rayleigh wind velocity, which is how fast the wind was blowing. Clarinet two was the Rayleigh wind reference, that is the air pressure. A bassoon or bass clarinet performed the Rayleigh bottom altitude, that is the Earth's surface. And there is an ambient synth for the validity flag of zero, that is the Aeolus downtime. Now, you can hear special events such as volcanic eruptions represented by drums, hurricanes represented by wind sound effects, and the coronavirus pandemic represented by a pulsating synth. Now, the whole work runs 28 minutes, but we're going to play about four and a half minutes of it. Quatre, trois, deux, un, top Allumage P80 et décollage VV12 Aeolus.
Woodwind music for European Space Agency's wind satellite, Aeolus. This is the Space Show, which is presented for Southern FM by members of the Space Association of Australia. In addition to presenting this radio program, we have a website, which I'll give you the URL for in a moment, and we hold social meetings as well. Our next meeting is this coming Monday, August the 14th. It'll run from 6.30 to 9pm, and the formula for future meetings is the second Monday of the month. So that's Monday, August the 14th, 6.30 to 9pm. Where is it? Well, it's being held at the Bentley RSL. Now, the Bentley RSL is at 538 Centre Road, Bentley. That's very near the intersection with Jasper Road. And uh, there is parking off Arthur Street, right uh, alongside or behind the RSL. And what are we going to have? Well, we're going to have a talk about that Luna 20, um, what's 26, wasn't it? (laughs) Uh, No, 25 mission. And... Uh, what, what it's doing, what, what its plans are, how it was designed. And also, Stuart Gangel, who you may remember was on the space show about two weeks ago, talking about his trip to uh, the Kennedy Space Center. So he's going to be uh, showing us the pictures he took during his visit to the Kennedy Space Center and all that. So that's at, once again, the Bentley RSL, 538 Center Road, Bentley, on Monday, August the 14th, at between 6.30 and 9. Now, don't worry if you can't rock up at 6.30. Just come whenever you can. We're a friendly bunch of people. It is a social evening with uh, with these two uh, short talks. And uh, to find out more about it, you could uh, visit our website, which is space.asn.au. So space. .asn.au to find out more about the Space Association of Australia. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. 
As Monday night went into Tuesday morning, most Melburnians were asleep. But some people were out and about, equipped with mobile telephone cameras to record a religious experience. What is that? Oh my god. Holy crap. Oh my god. That is tearing apart. Well, was it God? Or was it a comet? Was it a meteor? Or was it space junk? No, it was the fiery re-entry of the third stage of a Russian Soyuz 2-1B Fregat rocket passing high over Melbourne on its way towards its final destruction southeast of Tasmania. What had happened was that on Monday, August the 7th at 11.19pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, A Soyuz 21B Frigate M rocket was launched from Plesetsk Cosmodrome in northern Russia. The payload aboard was GLONASS K2 number 13L, a new type of navigational satellite. And once in orbit, the Russian Minister of Defence renamed the satellite Cosmos 2569, a series that they've been launching since 1962. The United States Space Force tracked the satellite into a 19,133 by 19,156-kilometre orbit of inclination 64.8 degrees to the equator. And it has Coast Bar designation 2023-114A. Now, the 114 means that it is the 114th launch successful into orbit this year. Now, the uh, satellite has a a mass of 1.6 tonnes. The frigate stage is in a similar orbit. Uh, Now, before the launch... An impact zone warning was issued for the third stage of the rocket in the Western Pacific Ocean, southeast of Tasmania. The third stage has a designation of RD-0110. It uses kerosene fuel and liquid oxidizer. Its dry mass, that is without the fuel, is 2.7 tonnes. The length of the cylindrical stage is 6.7 metres and a diameter of 2.66 metres. And it was that uh, re-entering the Earth's atmosphere that we saw here in Melbourne. I didn't see it myself. I was was asleep at the time. However, now that highlights the problem of space debris. Uh, This particular one wasn't in orbit. Uh, It was a suborbital trajectory, but... Debris is falling out of the sky uh, quite often. Now, Holger Craig is the head of the Space Safety Office at the European Space Agency, and in the context of the Aeolus re-entry, which we've already described, he had these comments about debris in space. This, I would like to give the word to Holger Krag, head of the Space Safety Office. Good morning, everybody. From my side, um, I wanted to give you a bit the wider context 
on what we are what we are doing here, how it adds to the safety of spaceflight and also the sustainability of of our environment. Today, we do have ten thousand spacecraft in space, of which two thousand are not functional. Um, in terms of mass, we are speaking about eleven thousand tons of on-orbit mass. And in terms of numbers of objects, uh, we are speaking about 30,000 objects that have a size of 10 centimeter or more. And when it comes to smaller objects, um, one centimeter and larger, the number is uh, at, the, at the order of one million already. Now, that is what is in space. Um, now, let's look at what comes back on ground and, and reenters. And that is about 100 tons in a, in a year that reenters in a natural way. Um, so you could say there's roughly one larger re-entry event once per week. That's the situation we are in today. So for ESA, um, both the problem in space and on, on ground is a major concern. And as many of you will know, there are international guidelines that have been developed and documented, which are today, unfortunately, only partially fulfilled. So several dozens of objects, unfortunately, are stranding in space every year um, and still the majority of the objects still re-enters in a natural way and not in a controlled way. Uh, at the same time, and that's very apparent, um, the use of space is undergoing a revolution. So when you look back at what we are launching in these past few years, that's more than all humanity has launched in the whole history of spaceflight together in the decades before. So we are really starting to use space uh, in, in these days. Uh, 2,000 objects have been launched uh, in the last year, so this is 20-fold of what it used to be uh, before. So we have a situation where we have a combination of an increased use of space and still insufficient technology to prevent the risks from space. And that you can see from the, from the many natural re-entries and also from the uh, number of objects stranding in space each year. So in response to this, um, ESA has taken uh, the initiative to improve the situation for its own missions by 2030. So everything that will be developed afterwards will become what we say debris neutral. And that means clearing precious Earth orbits after the mission. That means also that after 2030, then active removal of spacecraft by dedicated vehicles would become mandatory whenever the space system uh, was not disposed successfully by its own means. So you could say that in the future, we are aiming at rules that more or less compare to what every nat national park asks. So the, the thing you, they, that you bring in, you need to take out again um, after the mission. The safety on ground is also uh, an important measure uh, for us today. Typically, 20 to 30 percent of the spacecraft mass can survive the reentry, and uh, you know, atmospheric conditions, aerodynamic heating destroys the spacecraft, but 20 to 30 percent of the mass can survive. Um, although the likelihood is of a damage or an injury is very small, and so far no injury has been uh, reported, despite of the 100 tons re-entering every year, we take this aspect very seriously, and uh, future spacecraft will have to be designed, in particular when they're large enough to, to do a controlled re-entry. And that means that it will have to have a, a propulsion system on board that is large enough to change the orbit in a way that a target uh, area on the on the ground can be can be safely met. Today, this is not done by spacecraft. This is done only by launcher stages. But in the future, uh, you will expect to see that also happening for larger satellites. Now, smaller satellites, they will probably go a different route. They will see uh, a design change. 
a component that have a certain likelihood to survive the reentry can be swapped uh, against other components that are designed for demise by using alternative materials or changing the, the configuration of the, of the different subsystems on board. ESA wants to act on all these points and then gradually start to implement these um, technology and rules into, into its own guidelines. Because Aeolus burnt up over Antarctica, it is unlikely that any debris will ever be found. That is not often the case elsewhere. Several weeks ago, parts of an Indian rocket washed up on a Western Australian beach. Last year, parts of a SpaceX Dragon spaceship came down in rural New South Wales. And in 1979, debris from the Skylab space station landed near Esperance in Western Australia. In 1972, parts of the Soviet Cosmos 482 satellite fell onto farms around Ashburton in the South Island of New Zealand. In each case, there was no great drama, although police do seem to have a fascination with checking with Geiger counters for radioactivity. Now, numerous people saw the debris, and much of it is on public display in museums or in private homes. For the past 80 years, unverified reports have circulated that the United States government has recovered the remains of alien craft. These stories have been given a boost by release of United States Defense Department videos of what they called unidentified anomalous phenomena. First we had angels and demons, then flying saucers, followed by UFOs, that is, unidentified flying objects. Then came unidentified aerial phenomena, and now the terminology is unidentified anomalous phenomena. Now, NASA has been tasked with investigating unclassified reports of UAPs and is due to report later this month. Meanwhile, an interview on the United States television channel News Nation has sparked a new inquiry in the United States Congress. The interviewer, Ross Ross Colhart. He is an Australian journalist who was born in the United Kingdom and educated in New Zealand. He is the author of the book In Plain Sight, which purports to be about interviews with people who have seen UAPs and even worked in trying to reverse engineer the non-human technology from crashed craft. The interviewee was David Grush, who was later called to testify to the Subcommittee on National Security, the Border and Foreign Affairs in the United States Congress. Here is how he introduced himself. My name is David Charles Grush. I was an intelligence officer for 14 years, in the, both in the U.S. Air Force, uh, both active duty Air National Guard and Reserve, at the rank of major, and most recently from 2021 to 2025, or excuse me, 2023, uh, at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NGA, uh, at the GS-15 civilian level, which is uh, the military equivalent of a full bird colonel. 
I was my agency's co-lead in unidentified anomalous phenomena and transmedium object analysis, as well as reporting to the UAP task force, UAPTF, uh, and eventually, once it was established, uh, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, ARO. In response to questions, Grush repeated some of the claims he had made to Ross Cohart. One of these was that the United States military have in their possession a dozen, yes, a dozen intact or damaged non-human craft. In 2019, the UAP task force director asked me to identify all special access programs and controlled access programs, also known as SAPs and CAPs, uh, we needed to satisfy our congressionally mandated mission and we were direct report at the time to the DEPSEC-DEF. At the time, due to my extensive executive level intelligence support duties, I was cleared to literally all uh, relevant compartments and in a position of extreme trust, both in my military and civilian capacities. Uh, I was informed in the course of my official duties of a multi-decade UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program. Uh, to which I was denied access to those additional read-ons when I uh, requested it. I made the decision, based on the data I collected, to report this information to my superior, superiors and multiple inspectors general, and in effect becoming a whistleblower. Upon further questioning, Crush repeated this claim. Mr. Crush, finally, do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, absolutely based on interviewing uh, over 40 witnesses over four years. And, and, and where? I know the exact locations, and, and those locations were provided to the Inspector General and some of which to the Intelligence Committees. I actually had the people with the first-hand knowledge um, provide a protected disclosure to the Inspector General. And Grush said that efforts were being made to reverse-engineer the non-human technologies. Mr. Grush, as a result of your previous government work, have you met with people with direct knowledge or have direct knowledge yourself of non-human origin craft? Yes, I personally interviewed those individuals. Mr. Grush, as a result of your previous government work, have you met with people with direct knowledge or have direct knowledge yourself about ATs, advanced technologies that the U.S. government has? Uh, Based on uh, conventional uh, advanced tech, I was briefed to uh, the preponderance of the defense departments, both space and aerospace compartment of programs, yeah. Do you have knowledge or do you have reason to believe that there are programs in the advanced tech space that are unsanctioned? Uh, Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. And, And when you say that they're above congressional oversight, what do you mean? Uh, complicated question. Uh, so there's, you know, some, I would call it abuse here. So congressional oversight of conventional spe- special access programs, so I'll use Title 10, so DOD as an example, right? So 10 U.S. Code Section 119 discusses congressional oversight of SAPs, discusses uh, the, the DEPSEC-DEF's ability to waive congressional reporting. However, the Gang of Eight is at least supposed to be notified if a, you know, a waived or waived bigoted unacknowledged SAP is uh, created, and that's public law. Well, so that how does, I mean, I don't want to cut you off, but how does a program like that get funded? 
I will give you generalities. I can get very specific in a closed session, uh, but a mis misappropriation of funds and uh, does that mean that Does that mean that there is money in the budget that is said to go to a program, but it doesn't, and it goes to something else? Yes, I have specific knowledge of that. Yep. Do you think U.S. corporations are over overcharging for certain tech they're selling to the U.S. government, and that additional money is going to programs? Correct, through something called IRAD. And Grush gave a brief history of recovered UAPs. Um, has the U.S. government become aware of actual evidence of extraterrestrial, otherwise unexplained forms of intelligence? And if so, when do you think this first occurred? Uh, I like to use the term non-human. I don't like to denote origin. Keeps the aperture open, both scientifically. Right. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, like I've discussed publicly uh, previously in 1930s. And he was emphatic that non-human material had been recovered. Um, one of my constituents actually sent this next question, and I figured I'd ask it since I had the same thought. You've said that the U.S. has intact spacecraft. You said that the government has alien bodies or alien species. Have you seen, have you, have you seen the spacecraft? I have to be careful to describe what I've seen uh, firsthand and not in this environment, but I, I could answer that question behind, behind closed doors. Yeah. And have you seen any of the bodies? That's something I've, I've not I witnessed myself. Okay. And so with that being said, you know, and the other, other statement that has been made that was intriguing to me because, and it's intriguing because my, my view has been that we are billions of light years away from any, any other system. And the concept that an alien species that's technologically advanced enough to travel billions of light years gets here and somehow is incompetent enough to not survive Earth or crashes is, is something that I find a little bit far-fetched. And with that being said, you have mentioned that there's interdimensional potential. Could you expound on that? Oh, yeah, to answer your first question, and, you know, I'm here as a fact witness and expert, but I, I will give you a, a theoretical framework at least to work off to kind of espouse uh, crashes, uh, regardless of, uh, you know, your level of sentience, right? You know, planes crash, cars crash, n number of sorties, what, however high, a small percentage are going to end in, you know, mission failure, if you will, as we say in the, in the Air Force. Uh, and then in terms of uh, multidimensionality, that kind of thing, the, the framework uh, that I'm familiar with, for example, is something called the holographic principle. Uh, both uh, it's, it derives itself from general relativity and uh, quantum mechanics. And that is, if you want to imagine uh, a 3D object such as yourself casting a shadow onto a 2D surface, uh, that's the holographic principle. So you can be projected, quasi-projected from higher dimensional space to lower dimensional. It's a scientific trope that you can actually cross, literally, as far as I understand, but there's probably guys of PhDs that we could probably but, argue about that. But you have yeah. not seen any documentation that that's what's occurring. Uh, only theory. a theoretical framework discussion. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. Occam's razor is that this, these aircraft, um, have they been identified that they are being produced by, by domestic, um, you know, military and, um, contractors? Is there any evidence that that's what's being recovered? Uh, not to my knowledge, plus the recoveries predate a lot of our advanced programs that I previously am witting of. So, um, Would it be safe to say that there could be a scenario today 
where you have um, an aircraft that crashes and because it's been involved in one program from one federal agency and the but the but the agency that retrieves it does is not aware of that program and to them it, it appears alien in origin I mean that's a hypothetical situation I'm not aware of any uh, historical situation that would match that that you described so you're not aware it has not happened that you're aware of that I'm aware of um. and Gresh emphasized that what he called biologics had been found You've stated that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft. Based on your experience and extensive conversations with experts, do you believe our government has made contact with intelligent extraterrestrials? Something I can't discuss in public setting. Um, okay, I can't ask when you think this occurred. <laughs> if you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. And was this documentary evidence, this video, photos, eyewitness? Like, how would that be determined? The specific documentation I would have to talk to you in a skiff about. Gotcha. Yeah. A rather cagey um, gresh there. And we have more about uh, this UAP hearing after these messages. 88.3 Southern FM. This is The Space Show with Andrew Rennie. Over the past 80 years, since the flying saucer craze started in 1947, people have speculated on their origin. One early idea was that they came from Venus, Mars or the Moon. With space exploration in the second half of the 20th century put paid to that idea, unless you believe the crazies that inhabit YouTube. The next most popular idea is they are interstellar, using some faster-than-light technology. Other ideas have been that they came from inside the Earth, or that they are time travellers from our future. Now, one congressman was incredulous that given the ubiquity of satellite imagery, the UAPs had not been photographed. Satellite imagery. Let's talk about satellite imagery. We have satellites all over the place, some that we're aware of and many that we're not aware of, right? We're taking pictures of everything at every point in second. Uh, Mr. Grush, are you aware, do you have direct knowledge, or have you talked to people with direct knowledge that there are satellite imagery of these events? Uh, that was one of my primary tasks at NGA since we uh, process, exploit, and disseminate that kind of information. I've seen multiple cases, some of which, to my understanding, and of course I left NGA in April, so that's my information cutoff date, uh, but I personally um, reviewed both uh, what we call overhead collection and from other strategic and tactical platforms that were, I could not even explain prosaically, and I have a degree in physics, by the way, as well, and I, had, I, I am aware that you guys have not seen these um, reports, unfortunately. And I don't know why. It is, do you have direct knowledge, or you have spoken people with direct knowledge, that this imagery applies to crash sites, crash, crash imagery? 
I can't discuss that in an open session. Okay. Uh, do you have any information that the U.S. government is involved in a disinformation campaign to deny the existence of certain UAPs? I can't go beyond what I've already stated publicly in my News Nation interview because uh, it touches other sensitivities. Now, I'm not going to closely pull apart David Grusha's claims, but just consider these points. First, why do these things, wherever they happen to come from, have a habit of crashing into New Mexico, Nevada or Utah and not into Australia or New Zealand? Well, okay, New Zealand's pretty small, but Australia is the same size as the United States. Why are we missing out? Second, even if the United States government does have a dozen flying saucers in its custody, how come no civilian managed to photograph or much less see them before the military arrived to impound them? After all, Skylab, Crew Dragon and the Indian rocket tank were all found and reported by civilians here in Australia. Third, 80 years is a long time for hundreds, if not thousands, of people to keep such an important event secret. Even the Minister for Everything, Scott Morrison, was outed here in Australia. However, there are millions of people who have been awaiting the big captured flying saucer reveal for eight decades. They are anticipating that will happen any day now. But hey, Christians have been expecting the second coming of Christ for 2,000 years now, and so far they have been out of luck. At the July 27 congressional hearing, another witness was a former United States Navy fighter pilot, Ryan Graves. He made this astonishing claim. Um, my next question would actually be for Mr. Graves. Um, can you please explain to me in detail the event that occurred at Vandenberg Air Force Base? Certainly. Uh, in the 2003 time frame, uh, a large group of Boeing contractors were operating near one of the launch facilities at Vandenberg Air Force Base when they observed a very large 100-yard sided uh, red square uh, approach the base from the ocean and hover at low altitude over one of the launch facilities. Um, this object remained for about 45 seconds or so before darting off over the mountains. Um, there was a similar event within 24 hours later in the evening. Uh, this was a morning event, uh, I believe 8.45 in the morning. Later in the evening, post-sunset, uh, there were uh, reports of other sightings on base, uh, including some aggressive behaviors. Uh, these objects were approaching some of the security guards at rapid speeds uh, before darting off. Uh, and this is information that was received through one of the uh, witnesses that have approached me at Americans for Safe Aerospace. Was this documented in any official form, whether it was a police blotter? Yes, they had uh, official documentation and records from the event that the witness uh, held over the years. And I'm not going to ask you to do it right now for time reasons, but you'd be able to sketch what was witnessed, correct? And you've, have you seen that before on any other equipment and or during your flight time? I have not seen what they've described. Um, this object was uh, estimated to be almost the size of a football field. Um, and I have not seen anything personally that large. Now, I ask you, 
Something the size of a football field comes over Vandenberg Air Force Base before moving inland over the nearby mountains. And only Boeing employees report it? And no one outside the base, say in the surrounding towns or on the freeways, saw it? Given that smart camera telephones were not as common 20 years ago as they are today, no one photographed it or at least managed to publish their photograph? But hey, let's not deck too critical of those Boeing guys. I, too, have been to Vandenberg Air Force Base and don't have any photographs to prove it. I was there on 1980, May the 27th, as a guest of NASA to watch an Atlas F rocket launch NOAA-B, a weather satellite. NASA allows photography of its satellite launches when they are from its own launch sites. But this was from the Air Force Base, and as a condition of entry, I had to leave my camera behind. And from the Air Force's point of view, it was just as well. Because, off to the right, I could see a Titan 3D rocket being prepared to launch a top-secret KH-9 hexagon spy satellite. Popularly called Big Bird 16, it was launched three weeks later. I was also able to explore the Scout rocket control room, where photographs of the classified Blue Scout launches were proudly displayed. Can I prove any of this with photographs? No. But I still do have my NASA accreditation badge that got me into Vandenberg at 2am, one hour before the NOAA-B was launched. This has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie. Hopefully we'll be back 